Before I was um, gone for the month of May, as uh, some of you will know, preaching a series of messages uh, through the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, in the middle of that uh, great letter of the Apostle Paul, probably his most personal letter of all the ones in the New Testament, uh, Paul takes two chapters to speak about offerings and stewardship and giving. And we're in the midst of that section of that letter. I've entitled the message this morning, Integrity in Handling Church Finances. And uh, the, the text is a lengthy one, and because this morning I'm going to focus just on uh, verses in chapter 8, I'm not going to this morning read the verses in chapter 9. It's all part of the same passage, but we will come back to this text next week, and I'll read it in its entirety. But this morning, just reading uh, chapter 8, verse 16, to the end of the chapter. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. That's the, that's the offering they're taking for the poor in Jerusalem. Paul calls it an act of grace. Uh, he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Some of you uh, older ones who are here uh, may remember... Mark Hatfield. Mark Hatfield, uh, the Republican senator from the state of Oregon for 30 years. Mark Hatfield was not only a United States senator, but he was an evangelical Christian. Well, back in the 1970s, there were several scandals that were prominent in the news, and it had to do with charities, charities misusing funds, misleading donors, lack of transparency, lack of proper board governance. And so there were many in uh, American society who said the government needs to do something. The government needs to step in. There needs to be intervention. There needs to be oversight of these charities. And by the way, probably churches also. Well, Senator Hatfield was concerned about the churches also part. And so in 1977, he warned the evangelical church at large, that if we as evangelicals didn't get our financial house in order, if everything we did wasn't transparent and openly accountable uh, when it came to money, government action would probably take place. And so a group of uh, evangelicals heeded his warning, heeded his advice, and they worked out a comprehensive plan. 
And so in 1979, with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association taking the lead, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability was formed, the ECFA. And they established, and you can find these uh, points on their website, easily available, they established what uh, they call their seven standards of responsible stewardship. And so any Christian organization that wants to have that ECFA seal uh, as, as part of their organization uh, has to abide by these seven standards of responsible stewardship. I'm not going to read them for you one by one, but basically you have to demonstrate compliance in your ministry with various standards. Standards regarding accountability, how you raise funds, how much actually goes to the charity, how much is overhead, transparency, board governance, all those kinds of things. Very wonderfully well thought out series of standards. Well, today, after being founded in 1979, there are some 2,200 organizations that are part of the ECFA, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. I say that because if that organization had been founded in Paul's day, he would have been a charter member. And I say that because in this text, as Paul talks about giving and stewardship and handling money, you notice in our text, Paul is very concerned that everything be done above board with transparency, with absolute integrity. Uh, you notice in verse 20, Paul says, we take this course, and I'll explain what this course is in just a minute, so that no one should blame us about this generous gift. Wonder how it's being handled. Wonder what's happening to the funds that we gave. Paul says, we're taking a course of action so that everything will be absolutely transparent. Verse 21, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. That's pretty much the ECFA standards. Paul would have been a charter member. And so he wants this gathering of this large offering from Gentile churches for the poor in Jerusalem and Judea. He wants it all to be above board. He doesn't want any accusation, any questions, anything shady that is part of this great uh, collection that is taking place. Paul always had a great concern. You find this in the, the letters of Paul. He always had a great concern that everything that he did would always be above board, not just finances, but in his personal life, in his ministry, in every way, he didn't want anything that would discredit the gospel. He did not want anything that would besmirch the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this particular passage, particularly with regard to finances, uh, because what had happened is false teachers had come to Corinth and they had questioned and challenged Paul in the matter of financial integrity. Now, they challenged everything pretty much about him, including his basic gospel preaching, but they challenged him on, so what's really happening with the money that's being asked for? the money that's being donated. And there were some in the Corinthian congregation, sadly, who were being swayed by this smear campaign by Paul's enemies. And so that is why, by the way, throughout this entire letter, Paul asserts and he reasserts his personal integrity in every area again and again and again. Let me just give you a couple of quick examples. Here in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Then chapter 6 and verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. You notice his concern for integrity. Chapter 7 and verse 2, make room in our hearts, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. And then just a couple chapters beyond our text, in uh, chapter 12, verses 16 through 18, uh, first of all, verse 16, but Paul says this, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. What, what's Paul referring to? He did not want to burden them. Paul didn't take a salary when he was there. And he said, the reason I didn't take the salary, I didn't want to be a burden. This was a whole mission start. This was an evangelistic setting. I didn't want you to get the idea you had to pay for the gospel. And so Paul says, when I came to Corinth, I didn't take a salary at all, even though I had the right to receive one. I didn't want to be a burden. I wanted it to be all about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. But what Paul points to in this verse here is what Paul's opponents started saying is, the fact that he didn't take a salary should have raised a big red flag. Not taking a salary is just one of his clever, devious, crafty, deceitful devices to make it appear that he's a man of integrity. Oh, he's not interested in money at all. Sure. That was Paul's opponents. So talk about deceit, they said. You know, the money that you have donated for the cause in Jerusalem, what Paul's going to do is, yeah, some is going to get there, but he's going to appropriate a good percentage of it for himself. And so he appears all pious. He doesn't take a salary. Oh, he's such a spiritual person. But he has a lot of devious ways of lining his pockets, and this offering scam is one of them. That's what Paul is talking about here in this verse. I myself did not burden you, but you say I was crafty. I was being deceitful. I found other ways to get money, and you're none the wiser. Paul said that was not the case at all. You Corinthians know better than that. Paul says. That's why I'm taking all the precautions I'm taking. That's why I've put all the financial safeguards in place that I put in place so that when all is said and done, there can be no legitimate question about the funds that have been raised and where they went and how they were administered. Well, so let's pick this up, verse 17 and 18. So Paul said, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? Did anybody try to extract money from you or in some deceitful way, you know, get funds for their own purposes? Did anybody take advantage of you? Well, the answer to that rhetorical question is no. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? No, of course he didn't. Did we not act in the same spirit? Isn't Titus, aren't, aren't Titus and I the same in the way we deal with you, in our attitudes toward you? Of course we are. Did we not take the same steps? Yes, we did. And so Paul, throughout this letter, defends his integrity on every front because it's under attack. Now, in this passage, he's defending his integrity with regard to finances. And as we look at what this passage has to say, we're just going to start on a little bit of it this morning and come back to it next Sunday. I, I want uh, each of us to find application in this passage uh, for, for Christian ministries of all kinds, but for our congregation here in particular. So you think about a ministry. Ministry has a great plan for something, whatever it might be. And so there's some great endeavor, and it's launched, and, um, 
At some point, the whole thing collapses. A lot of reasons why that can happen. Uh, sometimes in a church, there isn't realistic and careful planning. Everybody's all enthusiastic and jump into it before really much thought is given. Uh, maybe an enterprise collapses because there is no oversight, there is no supervision. Maybe it collapses because there are no clear-cut guidelines or procedures, or maybe if there are, they aren't observed. Uh, maybe there's no well-thought-out strategy, maybe not looking at the long-term of what this is going to mean. All those things can bring down a ministry, but nothing will bring down a ministry quicker than suspicions among the people about finances. That will sink an endeavor quicker than anything else. If people in, and let's use our congregation as an example, if, if all of us together in the congregation began to have suspicions about how money is handled, maybe it's handled carelessly, or there's lack of accountability, or there's lack of transparency in, in one way or another, that can raise serious questions among a congregation, can't it? You don't blame people for raising the questions. It can create doubt. It can create division for sure. And it can harm a ministry and a congregation and perhaps permanently and irrevocably. So let's look at our text. There are two principles that I want to set before you this morning, several others next week. But here's the first one in our text. And it's simply this, that ministry leaders need to distance themselves from directly handling ministry finances. That's directed to me as a leader, as a pastor. Uh, for, for any person that is a leader in Christian ministry, it is extremely unwise for any of us to have any direct handling of church money, finances, the dollars that are given. Paul in this text wisely distances himself from any direct involvement with handling any of the money that is being gathered. And so what he does, Paul says, we take this course. Okay, what's the course that he's taking? He appoints a committee of three. Maybe you noticed that here as I read the text. There's an initial team of three. Uh, Titus is the one who is going to head up this team of three. He's well known to the Corinthians, well respected by them. And then there are two other team members. Neither of them are named in this text. The first one is mentioned in verse 18, and the other one is mentioned in verse 22. And so there's a team of three. Titus is the chair of the committee. And their responsibility is to gather the funds, to handle the money, to make sure everything is accounted for, records are accurate, that everything be done ethically and above board among all the churches where the funds are being raised. And so this is, as I say, a lesson for us as ministry leaders. How many ministry leaders have gotten into trouble because of money? Paul here sets the standard for us as pastors and for other Christian leaders that we are to be hands-off when it comes to directly handling dollars and money. Now, that doesn't mean being disengaged from budget discussions. When I meet with the church council, we discuss budget things. I don't say, oh, can't talk about money. I'll leave the room now. No, involved in budget discussions, it, means, it doesn't mean I don't ever see the, the monthly financial statement. I see it along with everybody on the church council. But what it means is I should not, I must not, I cannot be hands-on when it comes to dealing 
with money. So in my ministry over the years, I've had nothing to do, for example, with weekly offerings. Uh, even during the week, uh, and this has happened a couple times over the years, somebody hands me a check, they're not going to be in church on Sunday, and they say, can you make sure this gets into the offering? When they walk away, I don't take the check and say, let's see how much it is. I leave it folded up, I immediately put it in an envelope and seal it and put it in the treasurer's box. I don't even look at it. Um, over the years, I've had a policy never to ask how much anybody gives. Hey, you know, somebody who's in the know, you know, can you tell me, you know, ballpark how much so-and-so gives? Never done that once. I honestly don't want to know. And so whether it is the regular Sunday offerings, whether it is fall in gathering, whether it is raising funds for some special project, I have no idea whether a person gives or not. And I like it that way. I have no idea whether a person's gift is stingy or generous. I have no idea if anybody, any one of you gives in proportion to your income or whether you don't. I don't have any idea which one or ones of you give regularly and which ones of you don't. And because I don't know any of that and don't want to, that's why I can preach on money without any hesitation. Sometimes people say, oh, pastor, you know, how's it preaching on money? I got no problem with it because I have no idea what any of you have, what any of you give, when you give, how you give. I have not one clue. And so when it comes to speaking about money, I can do so with freedom because I have no idea of any of your financial status or what you put in the plate. And besides, when I ask for funds and money, it's for the gospel, it's for going into all the world, bringing the gospel. It's for ministry. It's for outreach. It's for people coming to Christ. What could be more important than that? And so with that kind of freedom, I, I can just say, here's what God's word says. I don't know who I'm talking to because I don't know what any of you have or give. So I can just say, here's what the word says about money. Here's what it says about material possessions. And I call on you to give generously. I call on you to give freely. And I can urge you with great freedom of heart great earnestness to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth. And so ministry leaders, and Paul sets the standard for this, if a ministry leader is wise, that ministry leader will have nothing to do with hands-on involvement with money. That's principle number one that stands out in this text. Here's the second one that I want to touch on this morning, and that is the primary qualifications for those handling ministry funds must be spiritual qualifications. All three individuals who are selected for this team, Titus and the two who are unnamed, we don't know anything about their financial know-how because that doesn't really matter in the long run. But what Paul highlights is their spiritual character. They were men who were honorable, they were individuals who had an earnest desire for people and for their spiritual well-being. They were God-fearing. They were trustworthy. And so when it comes to choosing those in a congregation to oversee finances, we don't pick them for their business background, at least we shouldn't, or for their knowledge of spreadsheets. Now, don't misunderstand. All that can be immensely helpful, immensely helpful. But you start with, is the person spiritually qualified? And then if they have a business background, then if they have financial skills, all the better. But that's not where you start. And so you notice with Titus, what, what does Paul say about Titus at the beginning of the text? 
Paul says Titus has an earnest care for you. You notice that in verse 16. Um, verse 17, Paul says Titus is very earnest. He has an earnestness. He has some of your translations might use the word zeal. He has a zeal for you as people. He's concerned about you. He's concerned about you as people. He doesn't have a zeal for your money, Paul says. And the apostle says, it's the same earnest care and zeal that I have for all of you. Notice what, uh, what Paul says in verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Paul says, Titus is just like I have been among you as I established the church. Well, the Corinthians knew Titus from experience. Just before Paul writes 2 Corinthians, Titus had been in Corinth. And he had been well-received. We discover that from the opening uh, portion of 2 Corinthians. The Corinthians had been glad to receive him. He had established a good rapport with the elder board, the trustee board there in Corinth. He had a good working relationship with the congregation. And it was evident to all of them that Titus was there for their benefit, not to extract money from them in some way. He had a zeal for their well-being. And you notice, by the way, that kind of zeal always is a gift from God. Verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. So if, if there's anyone who's in ministry who has an earnest care for others, it's God's gift. It's not self-generated. And so Titus, well-received, well-respected by the Corinthian congregation. And Paul says Titus's attitude is very evident in the fact, and I'm paraphrasing verses 16 and 17, is that when I asked him to head up this committee of three, he was eager to go. I made the request, but I really didn't even need to make the request because it was already in his heart. Uh, you notice this in verse, um, in verse 17. For he not only accepted our appeal... Titus, would you go? Would you head up this committee? But being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Titus, you got to go. No, I can't. I'm kind of busy. Well, okay, maybe. No, he eagerly went. I mean, I, Paul says, I, I barely asked him. It's like, yes, I'm ready to go. I'm concerned about the Corinthians. I'm concerned about this endeavor. And Paul says, I know more, but asked. And his response was immediate. It was eager. It was voluntary. Yes, I made the request, but it was pretty much unnecessary. Nothing here said about Titus's financial wherewithal or, no, uh, or knowledge, is there? Well, you notice the second team member, verse 18. This one is unnamed. Here's what Paul says about him. With him, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. We're putting him on the finance committee. You read that and you say, well, I don't get that. I mean, that's great. It's wonderful that he is earnest in sharing the gospel with others. What does that have to do with spreadsheets? What does that have to do with bank accounts? Uh, let's think about the question in, in our own context. Uh, how do we as churches often operate? So let's say here in this congregation, let's say somebody has a wonderful gift of evangelism given them by the Holy Spirit. And uh, they have a heart for outreach 
Uh, it might be older adults, it could be children, it could be youth, it could be any number of things. Um, could be our Kenya mission, you know, whatever it is. Have a heart for outreach, heart to have uh, people come to know Christ as Savior, eager and earnest about that. Do, when we see that, do we say, oh good, that's the perfect person to put on the trustee board? Do we ever say that? Usually the answer is no. Because we say that's not the best use of his or her gifts. I mean, let's put them on a mission committee. Uh, we've got a special outreach endeavor that we're planning. Let's make sure they head that thing up. But what does our text teach us? Notice this. That when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to electing those who will handle money and deal with finances, the first question, the primary question, the fundamental question to ask is, does that person have an evangelistic heart? That's question number one. Does that person have a zeal for the spread of the gospel? Is that person truly eager to see ministry grow and expand in the Botno area and beyond? And is that person already engaged in some form of ministry in the congregation? And if the answer to those questions is no, that person should not be put in charge of church finances, no matter what that person's skills in finances might be. That's what Paul teaches us. And I'll push this even a little bit further by way of application. No one should be put in any position of leadership in the congregation who does not have an earnest heart for those who will be served, does not have an earnest heart for Christ and his kingdom above everything else. That has to be preeminent. And when it comes to those that deal with money and finances, when the focus of those who handle finances and money is dollars and not mission, that church is asking for trouble in the long run. Doesn't mean you aren't concerned about dollars, or don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but, but the chief concern has to be for evangelism, outreach, and mission, and then you go from there among those who have a heart for that, who might serve then in a financial capacity in the congregation. I'm going to close in just a moment. I want you to notice one more thing about this second team member. And that is that he was appointed, elected by the churches, plural, at large. You notice verse 19. And not only that, not only is he famous for his evangelistic heart and zeal, but he has been appointed by the churches, plural, to travel with us. That word, English word, appointed, comes from a Greek root which means to elect by a show of hands. And so this individual, how this was done, we don't know, but among the churches, they said, this is the one we are appointing. This is the one we are electing to serve on this committee. And you notice Paul's great wisdom in this. This individual on the committee wasn't appointed by Paul at all. He was chosen by the churches at large, which meant that this individual had a certain independent standing on this committee, that his presence on the committee enhanced all the checks and balances that Paul is putting in place, all of the transparency that Paul is concerned to maintain. Next week is our business meeting, right after the service. And always when we come to the business meeting, one of the parts that drags along for some of us is, oh, all these financial sheets. 
we got to look at the, the, you know, the budget, the line items, how come so much was spent on electricity, or you know, wh whatever all those things are. So we, we come and, and we have the financial part, which is a significant part of our annual meeting. So thinking about preparing for that, next Sunday, I want to close by reading you one paragraph. This is uh, a paragraph from uh, Jamie Dunlop, who is a Baptist uh, preacher and, uh, and author. And it's a book that he published that Zondervan published back in 2019. And here's the name of the book, Budgeting for a Healthy Church. And then here's the subtitle, Aligning Finances with Biblical Priorities for Ministry. Let me read you one paragraph from near the beginning of his book. He says, to understand what really matters to a church, look past its vision statement, past its website, and look at its budget. Follow the money. A church budget is more than spreadsheets and numbers. It's a window into the heart of a church, illuminating the values and priorities of God's people. And then this final sentence of the paragraph, if you care about your church, you will care about its budget. Let's pray together. Lord, how often Christian ministries, Christian leaders, we can get entangled in questionable things when it comes to finances, or maybe there's nothing really that is illegal or immoral or unethical, but the appearance is there and great harm is done. So, Lord, as a congregation here, in all things, we want to be above board. We want to be winsome. We don't want anything to detract from the, the proclamation of the gospel, anything detract from our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to be transparent in all things and that our light might shine clearly and brightly. Satan is always at work to undermine, either legitimately or through just various devious means, any Christian ministry and finances is a good avenue to go down. And so, Lord, I pray that you would protect our congregation when it comes to these matters of finances. May all things always be above board, honest, ethical, above any kind of legitimate question. And, Lord, as we budget, uh, may it be done with ministry in view. So what are you calling us to accomplish this year? What lies in front of us? How might we reallocate funds into areas of ministry and outreach maybe that we haven't done before? Lord, give us that kind of heart as we deal with money and as we deal with the treasure that you've entrusted to us. Lord, as Paul says in this passage, all things done to your glory, for the glory of Christ. And that is what it is our desire personally and as a congregation that that be so. And so grant that in this congregation always that that might be true of us individually and as a church. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.